Let's take our Bibles and turn to Psalm 81 this morning. Psalm 81. For whatever reason, the the Psalms, which reflect about the themes of the Exodus, are are grouped in pairs through the book of Psalm, uh, 77, 78, 80, 81, 105, 106, 135, 136. I suspect that the pairing had something to do with the way that they were used in the, in the Old Testament worship among the people of God. As I've mentioned before, the, the Psalms were the hymn book for God's people in the Old Testament. So this is our second of two sermons. We're studying what I've referred to as the rest of the story. In other words, where did the nation of Israel go after God brought them out into the desert, after the Lord carried them to the promised land? Where did they fail? Where did they find comfort and help? And what can we learn from their response to God's deliverance? And so today we'll read Psalm 81, and I'll remind you that this is not man's reflections about God. This is God's word to his people. Psalm 81, to the choir master according to the Giddeth of Asaph, sing aloud to God our strength, shout for joy to the God of Jacob, raise a song, sound the tambourine, the sweet lyre with the harp, blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon on our feast day, for it is a statute for Israel, a rule of the God of Jacob. He made it a decree in Joseph. When he went out over the land of Egypt, I hear a language I had not known. I relieved your shoulder of the burden. Your hands were freed from the basket. In distress you called and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you. O Israel, if you would but listen to me, there shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me. That Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe toward him, and their fate would last forever. But he would feed you with the finest of wheat, and with honey from the rock, I would satisfy you. This is God's word. Let's pray. O Lord, now we come to you and pray that you would send forth your word by the ministry of your spirit, and that as you send that word forth, You would give your people ears to hear what your spirit says. We pray, God, that you would again be willing to use a a wretched, sinful, crooked stick like me to point this narrow way to Christ Jesus. We pray for the ministry and help of Jesus our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. If you were born in this part of the country, the, the term wilderness conjures up forests and trees and mountains. You think of streams and rivers. Those of you who have enjoyed camping or hiking in the state of Alabama might have gone to the Sipsi Wilderness or the the Chihaw Wilderness. 
To us, a, a wilderness is a, is a place where you might get lost. But you see, when the Bible speaks about a wilderness, it's not simply a place where you might get lost. It's actually a place where you might die. It's a desert wasteland. Both Sipsi and Chihaw, you go there and you obviously see it, it can easily support life. But that's not the way the Bible speaks about a wilderness. The Bible is written to a people and given in a time when people lived in and around and between various deserts. And so in the Bible, a wilderness is far more like a desert than it is a, a forest. When the people were delivered out of the waters of the Red Sea, immediately they come to the other side of the Red Sea and what's in front of them? It's a, it's a desert. I'll mention that because the backdrop of this psalm is a desert. You might think about it as the psalm is, is painted on the canvas of wilderness. It's not a psalm particularly painted about the Exodus or about the Ten Commandments or the Promised Land. It's not actually about the feasts, though those are mentioned here. It's painted on the canvas of wilderness. And so as that backdrop, we should remember as we approach this psalm that the wilderness is where sustaining life is impossible. And yet, Psalm 81 teaches us that those who thrive in the wilderness follow a rock. Physical pictures of spiritual realities. We'll examine a biblical paradigm and then a wilderness education and then honey for failures. If you're used to the way that I often walk through the text of Scripture, we will do that. But we are, we're going to recognize that this psalm is speaking uh, not only backwards but forwards. And so we're thinking in terms of the high-level way that the rest of Scripture understands this text. I'm going to borrow from many folks today, Derek Kidner, Jack Collins, Ligon Duncan, uh, Tim Keller here and there. We're going to start with a biblical paradigm. Psalm opens, you see, with a summons, a call to worship. Verse 1 says, sing aloud, shout for joy. Verse 2, raise a song. But it's not until you get to verse 3 that you understand the context. It says, verse 3, blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon on our feast day. So for Old Testament scholars, that's the hint this is a, a psalm to be used at the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles is the, the one feast where the trumpet is blown twice in the month. For them, that's after the harvest, the seventh month of the year. Verse 3 mentions these two trumpet blasts. One is at the new moon, the start of the month. One is 15 days later when the moon is full. What's the Feast of Tabernacles? It was a feast, an annual celebration in which the people of Israel were meant to remember and ponder the, the wandering of the wilderness. It's the, it's the time when they would leave their homes and go live in a tent for a week. So that's why I say that this is a psalm. It's a sermon to be painted on the canvas of a wilderness. Verse 6 talks about how God led them out of Egypt, how He relieved their burdens. Verse 7 speaks about how the Lord spoke to them from a thundercloud at Mount Sinai, how He tested them at the waters of Meribah. So one pastor says that the, the rest of the psalm is about what the, Lord, what the people did or didn't do throughout their time in the wilderness. Then the New Testament picks up this theme of wilderness. And it pictures something that was true physically and says it's now true spiritually. You must understand that, that the wilderness becomes a really important theme in the rest of the Bible. 
Of course, national Israel is, is celebrating this feast of tabernacles, and they are meant to remember and ponder all the desert realities of life in the wilderness. But then, of course, you turn to the New Testament, and the New Testament opens with a voice of one who's crying in the wilderness. As John the Baptist summons God's people back to the wilderness where they would repent of their sins, where they would be baptized. You'll also remember that immediately when Jesus comes out of the water from his baptism, he's anointed by God's Spirit. But before he begins his public ministry, the Lord takes him into the wilderness where Jesus is tempted and tested and tried. It's theologically significant. The Bible frequently applies the concept of a wilderness journey to all of us. To those of us who are walking with Christ. The Bible says we're, we're meant to see ourselves and we should see ourselves as sojourners who are walking in the wilderness. Particularly Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. It tells us that we're moving through this wilderness but we're headed toward the promised land, the heavenly home. But right now, you really do feel and know that this is a desert. And so the wilderness is not just the backdrop of a psalm. It becomes a biblical paradigm through which we are to understand our lives and our existence on this earth. In fact, everything that happens to you could be understood by the fact that you really are walking through a wilderness. The reason I have to open the the sermon differentiating the difference between a desert and a forest is to illustrate what the Feast of Tabernacles was meant to say to God's people. Because you see, people can survive in forests. A forest sustains life. Nobody survives a desert. Not for a month, not for a year, certainly not for 40 years, unless the Lord would do something miraculous to carry them through it. Feast of Tabernacles. Every year, let's remember that God gave us food and shelter and water that he gave us shade, that he kept our feet, our shoes from wearing out for 40 years. Why does the Bible see it as so important to pick up this theme? Because the world in its fallen condition cannot ever satisfy you. In fact, not only can this world never satisfy you without God doing something miraculous, The fact is, the more you seek satisfaction in this world, the more you find it really is a a desert. Why does the Bible have to tell you that? And Eric, this is pretty gloomy. It's a hard way to begin. I just graduated. Because people who are born in the desert have no idea that they are living in a desert. People born in this world have no idea the fallen condition that they are born into. Imagine if you were born in the Sahara Desert. It wouldn't take very long for you to suddenly realize, I feel something thirsty. Born and raised in this world, it will not take long for you to come to places where you go, I feel thirsty, spiritually speaking. When circumstances are fine, to be blunt, you don't notice it. But when the things that you trust in and cling to and put your hopes in disappoint you, you realize, wait a second, I still feel empty. I still deep down feel unfulfilled and unsatisfied. That relationship didn't satisfy. It was good for a while. It was wonderful. It wasn't enough. 
my health, my well-being did not sustain me. My pursuit of this career left me unfulfilled. My family and children, as wonderful as they are, it's still not enough. And so it is human nature for us to go looking for something else in the midst of the desert. That's actually the reason that college students arrive every August. They think they found freedom. This could be great. What are we going to do? Well, we'll binge on everything from food and drink to sex. And somewhere along the way, they, they reach a point. And it hits them like a brick wall. Some of them are lying in bed in tears. Others of them just feel like it's getting worse and worse. Some of them, you can see it on their face because the delusion of freedom did not do enough except expose the deep spiritual emptiness. And then adults do it too. This delusion that happiness really is the goal. If I just build my resume and get the job and build the career and get the prettiest face and the best body and a wife and a family, in the end, what you find is the best job still frustrates you at times. The best career is unfulfilling. The prettiest face, the best body still ages. Some of you are on the other end later in life. And you see now more clearly than ever the world with all the many things that really are wonderful cannot sustain life. It cannot satisfy your heart without the Lord. The world's a desert. And it's only when you have the Lord that your life is sustained and satisfied, that you're spiritually nourished through these sometimes, oftentimes moments of desert life. Those who thrive in the wilderness follow the rock. And so we have this biblical paradigm. Now let's look at a a wilderness education. The world's a desert. That's a biblical paradigm. There's another one here. God is a rock for those in the desert. Psalm 81, you have these two allusions to a rock. One is verse 7. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. And you remember, don't you, that the waters at Meribah were bitter. And the people grumbled against the Lord, Exodus chapter 17. And God said, Moses, go and strike the rock with the rod. And it was the Lord who brought water out of the rock. The, the other allusion is down at the end at verse 16. I would satisfy you with honey from the rock. Scholars all notice that Moses' song in Deuteronomy towards the end as the people are about to enter the promised land. This psalm draws heavily on Moses' themes. As Moses looks back on the time in the wilderness, in the 40-year desert wandering, the people encountered the rock at Meribah at least twice. There's actually another psalm that indicates they may have come a few other times. Moses recognizes that it was at the rock that the Lord became a place of provision and showed himself to be generous and gracious. And so at the end of his life, when Moses sings about this, Deuteronomy 32, 2, he says, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect. And then from there forward, through the rest of the scriptures, God is repeatedly referred to as a rock of salvation. Why is a rock a fitting illustration? Because in a desert, it's the one place that would provide shade. It's the one place where water could potentially collect. Psalm provides a wilderness education. You'll notice something here. 
it answers the why and the what and the how. First, why. Why does God take his people to the wilderness? So that they and you would meet the rock. Because in the wilderness, that's the one place that you come to to find and treasure the rock. Let me explain what I mean. Moses knew God from his childhood. He believed in God. But where did he experientially come to know the Lord? First at a burning bush in the wilderness. Likewise, the prophet Elijah, you might say he was in a ministry wilderness at this time. A low point, 1 Kings chapter 19. Where did the Lord take Elijah? He took him to the wilderness. And it's the wilderness where Elijah experienced the wind and the earthquake and the fire. It's in the wilderness that he heard this still, small voice. The Lord takes John the Baptist and Jesus to the wilderness because the wilderness is uniquely suited. In its desert landscape, that's the kind of place where people meet the Lord. Spiritually speaking, this is true for you and me. And that is that when the Lord takes you to the wilderness, to the desert places of your life, and He will, your first impulse in the desert is to be startled and you either want to complain, God, why are you doing this to me or to us? Or you'll want to try to grit your teeth and just push through and get the pain behind you. But the Bible says that this desert is here on purpose. The Lord takes everyone whom he loves into the wilderness so that you will come to know the Lord as your rock. Because in the Bible, really, and in life, the wilderness is the quintessential place where meeting the Lord becomes very tangible, very real. If you talk to any seasoned, mature believer, they will say, well, I always believed in God, I always prayed, but it wasn't until I went through that trial or that loss or that season of suffering that I encountered the Lord. Even many of you could look back on your own life, those wilderness times, and you would say, well, I didn't really want to go through it. I'm not sure I'd want to go through it again, but I wouldn't trade the lessons and the opportunity to meet the Lord there. So you came to know the rock. Second part of the wilderness education is this what question. What should I expect when God takes me to the wilderness? You see this in verse 7. In distress you called and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of the thunder. I tested you at the waters of Mirabah. You see what that verse is telling us is that there was an education in two parts. First, the secret place of the thunder, verse 7, that's Mount Sinai. That's where God's people, you remember, they met the Lord with a very straight-on encounter. And it was, it was startling to them. It was almost terrifying. You know some people have met the Lord that way. Meaning they encounter Him in a moment of, of power and awe. And I know people, and so do you, who've experienced the Lord in what they will tell you was a pivotal moment in their life. Maybe it was a health scare that God miraculously saved them from, miraculously saved them from, or a, a car accident where they should have died and maybe they almost did. 
And they will tell you these were sobering, terrifying moments. But I would suggest using Mount Sinai as an illustration that many of those encounters are not of the lasting kind. Because with time, evidence the golden calf, the terror is forgotten. And people will go back to who they were before Verse 7 also says the wilderness was an education in another way. Derek Kidner says it this way. Sinai was an education by encounter. Mirabah was an education by silence and apparent neglect. And you know that one. The desert is hot. It's dry. They were thirsty. They see an oasis. They come to that oasis and they think, ah, this is going to be a moment of relief and the water is bitter and it's undrinkable. Where is the Lord in moments like that? That's what the people wondered. And in his apparent silence, why doesn't he care about us? So many of us, that's the kind of wilderness education that God has used most often to teach you about himself. Maybe some of you are here asking those same questions today. Where is God? What is he doing? Why don't I hear him? Why can't I see him? Why does he seem so far away? And is he uncaring? At the Feast of Tabernacles, God said, I want you to turn and, and remember Meribah so you'd learn exactly that the Lord loves those he takes into the desert. And those are the places in the wilderness, that I test you by an apparent silence. And you know this like I do. It's in those moments when your sinful flesh is tempted to to jump to a conclusion. This is divine neglect. Is it neglect? God? The Bible says, no, it's a test. In a college town, the term test conjures up the notions of pass or fail. That is not the way the Bible speaks about a a test. In the scriptures, a test is an ordinary, loving, formative part of your discipline. You and I might read the events of our lives as pass or fail, but the, the Lord treats your wilderness education as a common part of your sanctification. How did the people do at Sinai? How'd they do at Meribah? Well, humanly speaking, they failed. They failed early in the wilderness, Exodus chapter 17, chapter 32. They failed again late in the wilderness at the end of the 40-year journey, Numbers chapter 20. What's the point? The point is your wilderness education will probably not be the place where you come out going, wow, I was a rousing success through the desert. And that too is part of your wilderness education. Why does God take his people to the wilderness? What should you expect to find there? And then finally, how will you be transformed by your education in the wilderness? This question also gives us a clue in order to think about how we will survive the next wilderness journey. Verse 8 says it this way, Hear, O my people, while I admonish you. O Israel, if you would but listen to me, there shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. But my people, verse 11, would not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. And then you skip down to verse 13. Oh, that my people would listen to me. And you hear the voice of a tender father who longs for his children to learn the lesson. That's the point of your education in the wilderness. 
that you would learn to listen and bow and look to the Lord only. This is so simple, and yet most of us do not do it. How will I be transformed when the Lord takes me to a desert place? How can I survive the next time? First, the whole psalm opens with worship. You come and you worship the Lord even when you do not feel like it. it it's because this pattern of posture correction is for you. Do you think the Lord is short on praise? Are there not angels in heaven with plenty of praise to sing? Would not the rocks cry out? No, you come to worship because it is you and I who need our posture corrected when we walk through the desert so that we'll learn to stare at the rock instead of staring at the desert. Number two, says the Lord, you listen. When you're in the middle of the wilderness, it is your temptation to run from the Lord. But He has brought you to this place so that you might hear His voice. So that in hearing His voice, you might learn to thrive and survive. Literally, read your Bible. That's where He speaks. So when folks feel like the Lord is far away, it's often because they've been unwilling to pause and and listen to His Word where He speaks. It's not necessarily because the Lord is fleeing or that the Lord is unwilling to speak into your desert days. Verse, excuse me, third point, to use the wilderness times as a place to take an inventory of your idols and dispose of them. There's a little bit of a play on words here. You remember Sinai and Meribah were both moments where idols were really uncovered, that the Lord caused them to have to lay those idols aside. There's a play on words in the rock concept. People are making these little tiny idols made out of stones, and they're carving them up, and they're bowing down, and they're holding on to them, and they're keeping them. And and, and the Lord says, take those little rocks and throw them out and turn and run to the rock. Those who thrive in the wilderness... It's a biblical paradigm. We've got a wilderness education. We'll close with this concept of honey for failures. Um, I just think it would be helpful to acknowledge that most of us look at our wilderness times and we really do feel discouraged. You might say, I don't think I ever pass the test in the wilderness. God takes me to those kinds of places. I'm going to whine. I'm going to complain. I'm going to run from him or I'm going to curse him. Or my heart will swell with bitterness. And so our passage closes with honey for those who fail these tests of faith. But in order to to understand the honey, you've got to remember how the New Testament redeems the wilderness And then how the New Testament speaks of the rock. And that is that the wilderness failures of the people of Israel and your failures are only redeemed in Christ. Before Jesus began his earthly ministry, he went into the wilderness. And there he dwelt for 40 days. He was tested. He was tempted. He was tried. And he was faithful in the wilderness. Unlike Israel, unlike you and the rock, how do we understand this rock? 
First Corinthians chapter 10 tells us more about the rock in the wilderness than we could probably understand at first. In fact, Paul uses this rock as a summons for his people to persevere in faith. He says, our fathers all ate the same spiritual food. They all drank the same spiritual drink. They all drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. You see, even then it was always and only salvation by grace through faith. And so when the people grumbled against the Lord at Meribah, the Lord said, Moses, go and take your staff, that same staff that I used to judge the nation of Egypt, and you walk over to the rock, Exodus 6, 17, 6. I, says the Lord, will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. It was a profound display of mercy for failures. God says, you strike me with the rock, with the rod of judgment, and I will pour forth the one thing that will quench your bitter thirst. Paul says it was Jesus on the rock. It was Jesus who was struck with the rod of judgment to quench the spiritual thirst of grumbling failures. Jesus passed through the wilderness as a faithful son. You haven't. God struck him at the cross with the rod of judgment so that you and I would be freed to do what Israel wouldn't do, to just acknowledge their failures and to return to the rock where the soul is satisfied. And the psalm ends with a phrase that makes utterly no sense to most of us. God says, when you walk through the wilderness, if you will listen to me and worship me and put away your idols, then verse 16, I would feed you with the finest of wheat and with honey from the rock, I would satisfy you. What does that mean? It's God's way of saying that I will bring something sweet even out of the most barren, desolate times of your life. So that when you make the Lord your shelter and your shade and your place of rest, you will find in Him far more than you ever expected to find. It is true that this world is a wilderness. But it is also true that God is a rock of salvation in the wilderness. And it's true that the cross of Christ is the ultimate proof that God brings something sweet from the most brutal circumstances. Those who thrive in the wilderness follow the rock where Christ is the honey to satisfy your soul. Let's pray. God in heaven, I ask that you would use your word, that you would comfort the afflicted who are here today and would you afflict the comfortable And would you cause your word to go forth and accomplish the purpose for which you send it. Now we pray that you would receive the rest of our worship and turn our hearts to the sacrament in just a moment to enjoy the Lord's Supper together. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.